Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I taught 16,000 therapists. There's only three things wrong with every person that turns up at your door. First of all, Marissa Pierre, the worldwide renowned therapist. From royalty international superstars, CEOs, and Olympic athletes, this woman definitely knows a thing or 2,000 about how we take control of our thoughts. 80% of your success is down to your beliefs, but it also damages so many people because if you're thinking, I'm not good enough, smart enough, attractive enough, your mind's job is to make your thoughts real, even if it's not true. A classic example of sex. So many of my clients couldn't conceive because their husbands didn't have enough sperm. But when men have sex with a stranger, they triple their sperm count. And porn really damages so many people because it's an impossible expectation to live up to. So many people have affairs, not because they don't love their partner, but because they're missing out. But it's all about what you have chosen to believe. So you've got to reverse that language. And the other thing that people do a lot, it really messes up your sex life to call your partner mommy or daddy because... Marissa, how do I avoid sugar? It seems to grab me. Food has memories, not the chocolate. It's the feeling you felt when you couldn't have it. And you can give yourself the feeling without the thing anyway. It's really easy, too. How? Should I hypnotize you so we can change it? Let's do it now. Okay. Close your eyes. And here's the magic sentence that changes your life. I got hypnotized. In this episode, Marissa hypnotizes me to completely end my sugar cravings and you're going to see it happen and you're going to find out if it works. So stick around. Marissa, I've been trying to figure something out. I've been trying to figure out if we get to choose our beliefs. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually wrote about this in my, my book recently and I I feel like you're the person to ask this question because I know that our lives are governed by these beliefs that Mm. we have about the world, ourselves and everything in between. But can we choose them? I think so. You know, when I was here last time, you asked me about my childhood, which I don't talk about a lot. It wasn't awful, but it also wasn't amazing. But the beliefs I had then are so totally different to the beliefs I have now because I chose to give myself better beliefs because, you know, you make your beliefs. And then your beliefs turn right around and make you. And then confirmation bias means you look for proof of what you have chosen to believe and you'll find it. So if you say, oh, I hate cats, they're vicious things that scratch you, they're really aloof, or I don't like dogs, they're barky, yappy, horrible things. Then if you believe that about a dog and you meet a dog, you'll feel so anxious that that will become true. But if you say, oh, I love dogs, they're the most loyal, gorgeous, loving things, then you'll have a different energy around them. So you should choose your beliefs. You should constantly upgrade, update, question your belief. Where did I get that from? Is that true? Who told me that belief? And even if it's true for them, does it have to be true for me? You know, I see a lot of women who say things like, well, you know, if you're really famous and rich, you'll never find a guy because 100 years ago, that was probably true. Men didn't go for rich, successful women because they wanted them at home. But it's not true now. So your grandmother's belief 
is not your belief. I love my daughter's generation who don't do body shaming or fat shaming and have a whole different language, which I think is so refreshing. So you can always choose your beliefs and you really should constantly check, why do I even believe that? Is it even true? Because so often it's not true at all. It's just something you've been taught or you've just gone along with it anyway. So in the case of cats then, Mm -hmm. you know, I like all animals, but cats i do think you know the way you describe them then a little bit scratchy yes sometimes a little bit you know annoying not as loving as dogs maybe mm-hmm. i'm gonna annoy a lot of cat people here mm-hmm. um if that is my belief if i say to myself okay no cats are wonderful they're lovely uh, you know they're fantastic mm-hmm. they don't scratch etc i feel like i'm just lying to myself and I, you know this is the case with self-belief as well mm-hmm. i could i could say that yes. i'm amazing and attractive and sure. all these things but in my subconscious mind mm-hmm. After getting, I don't know, bullied at seven years old by mm. a kid that called me fat and whatever yes. else, am I just not lying to myself? Well, I think you should lie to yourself. I think you should lie to yourself. I think you should lie, cheat, and steal every day of your life. Lie to your mind, cheat fear, and steal back the confidence you were born with. So let's imagine you're going for an exam. You go, I'm going to fail it. I'm going to mess it up. I've got a terrible memory. I know when I read that paper, my mind's going to go blank and I'm going to blow it. So that's a belief. But you could also say, I've got a great memory. Everything I studied for this exam is in my head. When I read the paper, the questions are going to come up and I'm going to remember the answers. And I'm super chilled at exams. I'm cool, calm, collected. I'm going to ace this exam. So if you repeat that over and over again, you see the subconscious doesn't think, it just feels. And if you say, I'm nervous, I'm so nervous, and you, the subconscious feels that, then when you're nervous, the mind shuts down or the blood rushes to your heart and your mind empties. It's like if you're crossing a road in a car, and you don't think, should I go left, right, forwards, backwards? You just move because in fear, you don't think, you move. So when you're scared, your mind empties. I remember years ago, I was coming home and this guy was following me and I knew he was following me and I knew I had minutes to get in my door and I couldn't get the key and I couldn't remember which way to do it. I'm like, oh my God, I have all the times to forget how this key works. I lived here for five years, but I was so scared I couldn't remember how to open my door at all because when you're scared, your brain empties. And so if you go into an exam going, I'm scared, I'm nervous, you won't do well. But if you say, I've got a great memory, I love exams, I'm excited about this exam, I'm so excited, I'm going to be assessed, I'm going to do really well, or I'm going to this assessment, I'm going to ace it. This person's going to love me and see that I'm so smart and... My answers will show them that I know what I'm talking about. The mind doesn't go, oh, come on, that's silly. The mind goes, okay, whatever you say, you make it real. Your mind's job is to make your thoughts real. The subconscious doesn't think, it only feels. And if your mind's job is to make your thoughts real, then your job is to think better thoughts all the time. So imagine you're going to have a needle stuck in your arm you go, oh, that's going to hurt, and that's going to be so painful. But you could, I always read my phone, and if you cough just as the needle goes in, it confuses your mind and you don't feel it. Is that lying, or is it just taking your mind somewhere else? That's the, because I I think if I can choose my beliefs, then I can unchoose beliefs. But I couldn't think of a a single belief I have now that I could genuinely unchoose. I can say it, yes, but I think I'd still believe it. Yeah, but the thing with the mind is, there's a couple of rules of the mind. One is, let me give you a couple that will help you. Every thought you think is a blueprint that your mind and body work to make real. Every thought you think has a physical reaction and indeed an emotional response. 
And here's another one, the mind learns by repetition. So when you think a thought a lot over and over again, it becomes real if it, even if it's not real. So if you think a thought, my neighbor's driving me crazy, they're so noisy, I can never sleep, I can hear their television, they're getting on my nerves, it'll become your reality. If you say, it's a little bit irritating, but I can put my headphones on, I can tune out, then you'll have a different reaction to the same event. You know, we don't have to change events. We have to change how we think about the events. It's like saying, oh, this commute to work is killing me. You know, this this being on this freeway is driving me crazy. But someone else would go, wow, I'd love to be on. You've got a car and you're going to a job and you're getting paid. That's my fantasy dream come true. Don't have to change a thing. You have to change how you think about the thing. So that is changing your beliefs. And a belief is really just a thought you think a lot. So you're born as a blank slate. Where did you get those thoughts from? Who gave them to you? So the beliefs you think you can't change, where do they come from? Let's do that. Now, where do the beliefs you think you can't change come from? So I think one of the recurring beliefs I've had about myself, yes, which I think goes back a, a long, as long as I can remember, to be honest, is that I am fundamentally unorganised. Unorganised, okay. I think people will be surprised to hear that because... I'm very, I'd say, productive. Mm -hmm. My output is high, but the organization of my stuff, even if you looked in my bag, mm. it would be like a jumble sale. My house as well, if I didn't have a cleaner, I think it would be, mm -hmm. you know, it would be like a bomb had gone off in there. I heard you saying actually on a podcast that when you go, your hotel room is very messy yeah. and it upsets you, but not enough to make you change it. You've been listening. I have been listening. <laughs> no, you're right. I, I think there's, there's a habit or something that I've built into myself where... I think I've told myself it's faster to mm -hmm. be messy. Yes. And, but then the, the dissonance or the, the issue that I take with it is that's not who I want to be. Mm. I want to be a messy person. I want to be someone who comes into their hotel room, goes into their suitcase and hangs everything up mm. so, so that tomorrow is easier. But what happens is I dive into the suitcase, pull my gym equipment out and run to the gym. And it's something I want to change because it's almost like this concession in my life where I've gone, well, that's just who I am. I'm just a messy person. And I think yeah. we all label ourselves. And of course, things. when you do that, now you're making it real. You say, you know, I can't spell, but my dad couldn't spell. And now it's genetic. So every time you say, I'm just a messy person, the strongest force in you and everyone in the world is you must act in a way that utterly matches up with how you have chosen to define you. So if you start by changing that and saying, I love being organized. It gives me such joy to be organized. I love putting, so when you say it, say it, say it, it will start to change. So for the last three weeks, I've been staying in a place with an amazing gym. And I started to love working out with really, really heavy weights because, you know, I got run over and I started to get muscle wastage in my leg. I was going, I love heavy, heavy weights. I love it. And I was really a Pilates yoga person. But for the last three weeks, I get up and I'm in the gym at half seven going, well, I love heavy weights. And I, I didn't like it before, but I decided, to, I decided to say it over and over again because when you say, state and affirm something, your mind must make it real. So all you have to do really is to start saying a lot, I love being organized. It gives me immense joy to put stuff away. I love it when everything's in its place and I'm in a hotel. And sure, I run to the, when I come back, I put my gym kit in a particular place. And I love that feeling of being super organized. And very quickly, it will start to change because you're thinking a thought that your mind has no choice but to make real. So interesting. 
But it's also true, you know, you think a thought and you ha your mind can't help it. It has to make, you know, we do that. We did that thing with a lemon, didn't we? Where you think you're eating a lemon. Have we ever done that? What's that? Well, let's do it now. Oh, so good. put your hand in front of your mouth. Yeah. Imagine you're holding half of a great big fat juicy lemon. Close your eyes and just put that lemon right up to your nose and breathe in that amazing lemon smell because nothing really smells quite like a lemon. Now squeeze that lemon so hard so that lemon drops pucker onto the surface. Stick out your tongue, lick off the lemon, open your mouth really wide and shove that entire lemon into your mouth. And I want you to start sucking and biting and chewing all the flesh, literally bite into that lemon until the lemon drops burst onto your tongue and your taste buds pucker and swell as you start to chew that lemon, suck that lemon, swirl that lemon all around your mouth, keep eating the lemon, suck it, chew it, swirl it around and then open your eyes. Did you start pumping out saliva? Yes, I did. And so here's a question, was there a lemon? No, there was no lemon. That's true. There was no lemon. But you could also say yes, which is also true. They're both true. No, there wasn't. But yes, there actually was. Where was it? Where was the lemon that was making you make saliva? In my head. <laughs> in your head. Yeah, it wasn't anywhere else. It was in your head. Just do another one. Put your um, right arm out yeah. towards me and just swing your arm behind you as far as it will go yeah. and have a look at where it's gone. Just look behind you to notice where it is. Bring it back. I think you went up to like the third book on that bookshelf. I want mm -hmm. you to imagine, close your eyes and tell your mind, my arm's going to go a third further. I'm now like a bendy Barbie and Ken doll. My arm is so flexible, it's going further. I want you to imagine all the muscles in your right arm becoming super flexible like cooked pasta. Open your eyes, put your arm out and say to your arm, you're going a third further now. You're going a third You're like further. a pretzel. You're like super, flexible. super flexible. Go a third further. Go a third further. Swing your arm back and just watch as it goes a third further. Now look at how far it's gone. Uh. You were only up to the third book before. So what happened then? Um, I just believed my arm was going to go further. And it did. Yeah. And you see... And for men, I get men who say, you know, I, I can't please my wife. I can't get an erection. I, I can't keep it going. And, and she's going to leave me. And if I tell them other things, you know, you're a great lover. You can maintain an erection for 20 minutes or 10 minutes or the average is about four and a half minutes. That starts to happen. They don't do anything else except listen to a recording that says you have longer erections. You can have a great sex life. You can wait until your partner orgasms. And it all becomes true because every time they say, but I can't do it. It's all over in a minute. I can't please her or him. They actually make that real. But when you just change a thought, you know, there's a song called Love Changes Everything by Climby Fisher. But actually thoughts change everything. When you think a thought, it's such a game changer. Erections. Yes. <laughs> it's so interesting because in my friendship group with my male friends, we've spoken about sex life, libido, mm -hmm. erections, a of course. lot. Yeah. Um, we've all struggled in different ways at different times mm -hmm. with this. And it, it's one of the areas in life where it's so clear to me that thoughts are the problem and the solution. Yeah, because again, if a man thinks about sex, looks at pictures, looks at a movie and gets aroused, you get a very physical reaction straight away, even if there's no one in the room with you. 
So that's a classic example of thinking a thought about being aroused, turned on, feeling sexually attracted, and your body makes it real, even there's no one there. And it can be, at a wedding, it can be an event, it can be highly embarrassing for a guy to get an erection in the wrong place. But if you think a thought, I'm turned on here, the body makes it. It does it for women too, but it's not so obvious for us. We can kind of hide it. But yes, it's a thought. I can't do it. I can. I'm going to fail. I'm going to succeed. Do you work with people often that have sexual dysfunction? All the time. Is it becoming more popular or more prevalent in your view? I think people are more able to talk about it. A lot of women come and say, I can't orgasm. I'm, I'm, I can't orgasm at all. I don't know what to do. All my friends are having massive orgasms. But me, the more I try, the harder it is. I don't think that's true. Apparently our grandmothers had more sex than us. But I think now we have all this pressure. We watch porn. We watch other people talking about their amazing sex. We think, oh, I, I'm not like that. But it's very easy to make your body super orgasmic. But I think before we didn't talk about that. My grandmother would have never talked about orgasms or having a design of vagina or a Brazilian. She didn't even know what that was. So we're in a different generation now where... You know, every year there's another way to hate your body. Even your genitals have got to be perfect now. And I think it's so much pressure for people. I've got to look like a porn star, have sex like a porn star. And porn really damages so many people because it's such an impossible expectation to live up to. Seems that pressure as it relates to sex is yeah. like the antithesis. It's the enemy. Yeah, of, of course. Especially for, I can only speak from a guy's perspective because that's what I've ever been. But if there's ever pressure... In the bedroom, there is zero chance I'm getting an erection. Of course, because comparison is a thief of joy. And we're so busy comparing ourselves to porn stars and someone who looks like the Kardashians who has a perfect body and everything's perfect. It's not really like that. Have you ever worked with men that have um, sexual dysfunction issues? Yeah, a lot of men with premature ejaculation, erectile dysfunction, all of it. I've got a friend who... I would say if it was me, okay, because mm-hmm. I feel like I, I, I like to be honest. <laughs> Everyone's yeah. got a friend. It's yeah, always I about know. a friend. It sounds like I'm talking about someone <laughs> like, talking about myself, but there's a couple of things I'll talk about mm-hmm. from my own perspective in the sexual department. But um, my friend was in a relationship. He was in the relationship for a couple of years. And then halfway through the relationship, he could no longer keep an erection. Mm-hmm. And he was t- talking to me a lot about it. And then he ended up ending the relationship because he had convinced himself it was impossible to change that mm-hmm. and in fact I know a lot of guys that struggle with this mm. and there was a point where I was one of them where okay. I just seemed to get this thought in my head about sex and I struggled to to keep an erection but also just to keep myself mm. to want sex yeah there's going to be people listening to this right now that are in that situation where mm-hmm. something has just changed. Mm. Every time they go to bed, it's just this high pressure situation. Yeah. Um, they, they can't get an erection. Therefore, they're avoidant mm. of having sex. What do you say to those people? You know, it's really interesting because we, we want intimacy. We think, oh, I want to fall in love with someone that finishes my sentences, that knows when I'm hungry, that knows when I'm having a bad day, that just knows me inside out and loves my very soul which is wonderful, but what great sex requires is mystery. What eroticism requires is not intimacy at all. So in the beginning, even for the first, it's all new. You don't know what they're going to do, how they're going to do it. It's all very exciting. It's all new. And so for men especially, you know, it's great maybe for the first two years. And then it's like, oh, like one of my clients said, every time my husband comes to bed with just his pajama top on, 
and no one's sex, but it's so unromantic. I mean, he just doesn't bother to put the pajama bottoms on. It's like, oh, God, is that his idea of foreplay? I mean, and obviously, you know, it's always every Saturday morning before we go and do the food shop, and it's so predictable. Many people have affairs, not because they don't love their partner, but because they're missing out. So you have intimacy. Which is like the love. Being in love and knowing each other and loving each other and, you know, not caring if your wife's got her period or your husband's got a bit of bad breath or they're tired or they've got a cold. You just love them anyway. But then you have eroticism, which is amazing sex, great sex. And eroticism really likes mystery, suspense, a bit of edginess, a bit of naughtiness, a bit of the unknown. And they don't go together. They really don't go together at all. But there is one thing that makes them go to, and that's called fantasy. There's a bridge that links eroticism to intimacy, and it's eroticism, and it's called fantasy. Well, I think, oh, isn't that being unfaithful to my partner? Surely I shouldn't fantasize. But actually, Fifty Shades of Grey, which was not a great book at all, but it taught people a lot about, oh, I can fantasize, I can read this book, and I can pretend I'm Anastasia with Mr. Grey. And it, that book did so well because it allowed people to fantasize. And so if you have a relationship of 30 years, I mean, I'm great friends with John and Missy Butcher. We've been married for 35 years. Who are they? They're a couple that created Life Book. They're very, they live in Hawaii, but they talk a lot about how they have a very erotic sex life. After 35 years, it's like red hot, but they understand it's all about bit of mystery, bit of drama, bit of suspense. I'm very lucky that my husband and I travel all over the world, so we never have a Saturday night, Saturday mornings have sex and go to Sainsbury's. That's just not in our agenda. So we always have a bit of newness going on. But for men, even if you love your partner so much, when it becomes predictable, it's like the thrill goes. You know that song about where's the thrill gone? I've lost the thrill. The thrill isn't there. So you have to put a bit of work back into making your sex life thrilling and moving it away. And so it's it's hard when you love someone, but you know everything about them and they about you. And it's like, well, there's no newness here. Obviously, you know, I go on holiday, we have great sex. Why is that? Well, you're not thinking about the laundry or anything else. You can just really let go and you're in a different place and you can be someone else. You often hear about people going on holiday like girls to Ibiza and going wild. And then they would never be like that at home because it gives you a chance to be someone else. So sometimes in your sex life, you have to take that chance and use drama, mystery, suspense, edginess, just like I was telling one of my clients, said, I, went home, I went home and said to my husband, dominate me. So what shall I do? She went, well, dominate me. He said, yeah, but what? She said, well, that's the point. Don't ask me what, how can you dominate me if I have to tell you what to do? I want to feel overpowered by your maleness when you say, well, what shall I do? You're more like a girl than a boy. And I don't like that. Because, of course, opposites attract, especially in sex. Even if we're a same-sex relationships, opposites attract. And that's very exciting. When people are together a long time, they try to make their partner like them. And they forget that opposites attract. So if you keep trying to make your partner like you, and they keep trying to make you like them, then you haven't got the opposites attracting anymore. And then it kind of disappears. And the other thing that people do a lot, I mean, my grandmother used to call her husband dad or daddy. And that was a bit weird, but that was maybe her. It wasn't a sexual thing. She'd say, come on, dad, get out of the way. And what do you want for tea, dad? And they, they had no sex at all. She thought it was the most disgusting thing in the world. But the minute your partner becomes mummy or daddy, and many women, in the best of attention, say things like, have you taken your vitamins today? 
you know, wear a coat, it's going to get cold. Did you pay the bill? I knew you wouldn't do that. You're becoming either critical mummy or loving mummy. And then we have the opposite. Some men who are very controlling say, you can't have that. You're not going to have that. They become controlling daddy. And the minute your partner is in any way mummy or daddy, you can't have sex with them because who wants to have sex with their parents? That's really weird. And many people don't realize how, as they say, in a long relationship, they take on the role of critical parent, blaming parent, judging parent, and then you have no desire left. So you've got to be very careful not to let that happen. And especially when you have children and then you say, Mommy, can you get Andy a, um, a tissue? Da Daddy, can you get Susie her gym bag? And even though you don't mean it, you're now saying, Mommy, Daddy. People do that with their pets even. Daddy, get um, take Toby for a walk or Mommy, and it's like it really messes up your sex life to call your partner mummy or daddy so interesting it is isn't it even the, when you were saying then about the lady that came home and said to her partner dominate me and he went how no he said what shall i do yeah which is like <laughs> it's it's the antithesis of domination but it yeah. kind of speaks to <laughs> 10 years of him mm. just trying to please her yeah, but also that it's bad community. She should have said, hey, you know, what you do, the, you do the sandwich, you go, hey, you know, we've been together for seven or eight years and we're great. But, you know, I've got this thing. I would love you to dominate me like this. I'd love you to pretend to be the postman or the gardener or I'd love you to pretend to be someone. It would really excite me if you could do that because then it would just be exciting. And then they go, oh, okay, I get it. I've got to pretend to be the postman or the gardener or... You know, I watched a lot of women who couldn't conceive, and this is where I learned this from. So many of my clients couldn't conceive because their husbands didn't have enough sperm. But when men have sex with a stranger, they triple their sperm outtake. And when women have sex with a stranger, their cervix tilts to suck up the sperm. So when I realized it's a great book called Sperm Wars that tells you all about it, I thought, okay. So I'd work with my clients and say, okay, this is what you've got to do. You've got to go home and pretend you're, I don't know, an air stewardess and your husband, but you mustn't speak because that's going to ruin it, and then have sex, make, have some kind of fun, go to a hotel. Of course, the men love it. I don't have to talk. No, no talking. Just act out this fancy, because he will triple his sperm outtake. Your cervix will tilt, and it's like it's like IUI. It's like um, you have more sperm, and so many of my clients said, well, I got pregnant, you know. I've tried all this time, but going up the road to the Holiday Inn, pretended he was like the plumber or anything at all, and that worked. We got pregnant like that because he made so much more sperm. And so isn't that interesting? That wasn't about fantasy. It was about how can you get more sperm? How can you become more fertile? What can you do? And these were just silly little things that help men and women who were trying really hard if it had a low sperm count get pregnant. Why does that happen? Why does the sperm count triple in the cervix tilt? Well, let's imagine, you know, that we're in a tribe and there's some people there and nature, the human species must go on. So for men, when they impregnate the same person over and over again, they've made her pregnant many times, but a new person, if you can get a new person pregnant straight away, that's how the human race continues. You know, one of my friends was telling me this story about in New Zealand with the rams, and he said, you know, you would buy the male rams and you drive them to the field and they could smell the females. They started ramming the door, that's why they're called rams. And when you finally get there, you open the gate and they charge out they have sex with every female. And when they come back, they've lost half their body weight in a really bad way, but they have to have sex with every single female, um, every you. So it's just an evolutionary of making sure the species goes on. So what does that say about monogamy? 
But this is not, nature doesn't care, nature cares about the species continuing. Nature doesn't care about monogamy. Its role is to make sure we continue. But yes, of course, we want to be monogamous. So what do you do? We use that very thing. If, if being with someone new excites me and gets me going, why can't I pretend my partner's someone new? And of course you can. You can do all kinds of great things. You can introduce newness. Don't always have sex in the same place at the same time. It's a little tiny bit of effort, but do something to make it new and exciting. So you would recommend spending time apart as well? Yes. I'm, I mean, I've been with my husband for 15 years. We've only spent 11 days apart and we work together. So we, you know that thing about living over the shop. So we work together. We're together all the time. But we have a great sex life because he, we both understand what makes it tick, which isn't necessarily being apart. But yeah, being apart's great too because you can't wait to come back to that person. A lot of people will listen to all of this and think, God, I'd love, I'd love to do that. I want him to turn me into a maid and tie me up and surprise me or whatever. But if I even mention this to him, he would look at me like I've got, you know, a tail or look at me like I was weird. Mm. Well, part of having a great relationship is doing for the other. So I, if I said to my husband, I'm not hungry, so we're not eating. I'm not tired, so we're not going to bed. I'm not cold, so the heating's not coming on. He'd look at me like I was mad because part of that is I'm not really hungry, but you want to go out for dinner? We'll go. I don't really want to go to this event. Or I don't want to watch, go to a football match, watch, but, but it's important to you, so I will go because in a relationship you do for each other. So if your partner says... I would love you to put on a little maid's outfit and run around with a duster. It would be so amazing. I don't want to do that. Isn't that drug? Do you think, well, maybe I could just try it once. If I don't like it, I never have to do it again. Maybe it would be red hot. It's not about being objectified. So if you love someone and assuming their fantasy isn't dangerous or painful or super weird, why not just see if you can do it? And then, then you can say, hey, if I do that, you can do this because it's trading all the time. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's the same thing. My husband, If I'm tired, my husband will say, I'm going to make you something to eat or I'm going to drive you. I'm going to do that for you because he loves me and I'm the same with him. But people think, oh, I shouldn't. why should I have sex? I'm tired. Why should I do that? And the worst thing is that I don't want sex anymore. So you can never have sex again either, which is very weird because why would you condemn your partner to no sex ever just because you don't want to have sex? And imagine if it was the other way around, because isn't a relationship doing for each other, even if it's not really your thing? Got so many questions to ask on this, because I'm just thinking about all the conversations I've had with my friends recently about sex and their relationships. And I've got another friend who mm -hmm. is in, in a relationship. It's become a sexless relationship. He's staying with her, I think, in part mm -hmm. because, because she's really nice. But why has it become sexless? Um... That's a good question that I wouldn't know without asking him. But I'll tell you what he's, he's told me. He's told me how much he wants to have sex with other people. Mm -hmm. And he actually described it as like a temptation that mm -hmm. he just, he is like, as if he's possessed. Mm -hmm. He says every five minutes, someone will walk past and I'll think about having sex with them. Like he's absolutely okay. obsessed with it. But not with her. Not with her. Mm. She wants to settle down mm -hmm. because she's at an age and phase of life where she feels that, she kind of needs to hurry up. Mm -hmm. so what, these are just words that I'm repeating that he's, sure. he's told me. And so he feels a bit stuck where he's yeah. got this partner who wants to settle down. He clearly doesn't want to settle down and he's thinking about having sex with everyone else and he's not having sex with yeah. her. And that's how he's escaping. He probably doesn't want to settle down and have children, but feels he should. Like 
Sounds like he wants to be become a success. First. And now he's thinking about having sex. That's his way out. You know, oh, he can't say to her, look, you know, I love you, but I'm not ready for that. That five years down the line for me. So his mind is doing it. He thinks he wants to have sex with everyone but her. And, and he his feels mind, pressurized because yeah. of this time thing. Because his mind is saying, you're not ready. You're not ready. You know, often we have dreams that say, oh, I'm not ready. Or, wow, I thought I wanted to do this. But my dream said, oh, no, you don't want to do that at all. But the desire he's doing with other people is his body saying, you are not ready to be with her. You'll be with anyone else but her. And you should really just tell her the truth and say, look, I'm not at that stage you're at. I'm, I'm just not ready for that yet. Because you see, when the, you can't open your mouth and say, I'm not ready or I'm not comfortable, I'm not happy, the body goes, I'll do it. I'll do it for you. And I see that with all my clients, not just sexually. When you can't say, one of my clients told me years ago that he got fired from his job and he couldn't tell his wife. So every day he picked up his briefcase and went and sat in the park and then he got really sick. And then she said, you're so sick, you can't go, you'll have to resign. He went, okay. And he never had to tell her that he'd lost his job because the body made him so ill, he would have lost his job anyway. So, you know, I love this expression, the feeling that cannot find its expression in tears will make other organs weep. And so he's got a feeling that he can't express. And when you can't open your mouth and go, I don't want to do that, the body says, I'll do it for you. And it finds really peculiar, obscure, often really unhelpful ways of doing it for us. How does he know, though, that it's a case of him not being ready? Or even in my case, when I was 24, 25 years old, I just self-sabotage any sign of commitment. Okay. So well, let's talk about that. So let's yeah. go back to your 24 years old. Oh, for my entire, I mean, it starts mm -hmm. at 14. So it's a 14. We're not being committed dating. at 14. Yeah, 14. Yeah, when you start fancying people. You're 24 and you fancy people and you're a very good looking guy Thank and you've you obviously had some relationships. Tell me about the self-sabotage. It started with Jasmine. Mm -hmm. Jasmine was with a guy called, I probably shouldn't name him, but I'll call him John. Mm -hmm. Jasmine and John. Sounds Jasmine like and John. They book. were in a relationship. Right. I really fancy Jasmine. She's going to hear this, but she knows already. Fancied her for about three years, pursued her doggedly from like 14 mm -hmm. till 17 really 18 and there was a day where like jasmine gave me a chance finally mm -hmm. she was in a relationship with this guy called john um and on that day i got terrified mm -hmm. and i kind of remember persuading her out of it mm -hmm. even though i'd pursued her for yeah. years and then as i looked through my early sort of 20s the same mm -hmm. sort of recurring behavior pattern showed up where i would at any sign of commitment, I would come up with a reason why I couldn't commit. Sure. I'm busy. I need to become a millionaire. Mm -hmm. This will get in the way of my work. Da, 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 da. So what you were doing was the oldest trick in the book. You pursued Jasmine. She wasn't available. She was with someone else. When she became available, you thought, oh, no, because now she could reject you. Now she could say, when she was with someone else, it was a dream. I'd love to get that. Girl. When you had the chance, it's like, oh, she could find out I'm not worthy. She could find out I'm not Let's good enough. Context. Sorry? I can give you context as to how it felt. The idea yes. of commitment felt like prison. Of course. Yeah, you've, you've said that before. Yeah. And so, of course, if your end goal is commitment is prison, being stuck with one person is prison, your mind says, I've got to get you out of this. So it's all fine to have flings. But the minute commitment comes up, you back out because that's going to jail. You don't want to do that. So... That's really normal when you say things like, oh, I'm going to be tied down. I'm nailed down. Oh, that's it now. No more fun. And they, people say things like, you two are one now. And may all your problems be little ones. And, and 
sometimes we don't like that. It's like, oh, I don't like that idea. And all the vows about to love, honor, and obey, to forsake all others. We think, hmm, do I really want that? But you were adamant that you didn't want that, that a relationship was prison. So when you tell your mind, I don't want it, the mind must get you out of it. If you say, oh, God, I've got to give that speech. I don't want to do it. I want to do it. I want to do it. Don't be surprised on the day of the speech you wake up with chronic diarrhea, a terrible cold, and migraine. And your mind goes, you said you didn't want to go? And I'm so cool, I got you out of it. Because the mind listens every thought you think it listens to. It's like a genie, your wish. Is it's come on, so your wishes, I don't want to be in prison of commitment. I'm happy to date, but when it gets a little bit serious, the mind goes, let me get you out of this. And we don't do it in logical ways, you know, self-sabotage, procrastination, and nothing more than the fear of either not being enough or not wanting to go where you think you're going. You know, there are people who apply for a job, get it, and they never turn up on the first day or think, God, I work for that and I don't want it. I thought I wanted this. I don't want it. I thought I wanted that person. I actually don't want them. And so for you, the thought that a relationship is prison is so powerful that it would make every relationship unravel, including Jasmine. So now let's go back to your friend. Yeah, so how does he know that it's not just some like, I don't know, unresolved traumatic issue that's stopping him being avoidant of committing to that individual or if that individual's not right? And I think it's the, the the case with like jobs and relationships and everything in our life. How do we know that it's not just some trauma response that we're having or if the thing we're avoiding or rejecting is actually not right for us? I think you know when you think, okay, my life without this person, would it be better or worse? So if I have an argument with my husband, we don't argue a lot, but I always imagine my life without him and it's so much worse than my life with him. Occasionally annoys me. He's got some, he can put, get a tea bag and have it in every surface of the kitchen in like three minutes flat. I would say, wow, how do you do that? I just don't understand how you can do that. But you have to pick your battles in a relationship. And when he really annoys me, I just think, okay, imagine if he wasn't here. And that I thought, oh no, I wouldn't like that. Maybe not here for a couple of hours, but forever. So you know because of how you feel, but you see, you know, we're all taught this, you know, you found your other half, but you're not a half, you're a whole. You can't find another half to complete you because you're not half a person. But a lot of us are taught, you know, you're going to find the handsome prince and you're going to live happily ever after. Well, that, that isn't true. There's never one person ever that could complete you or meet all your needs. And so you have to be a realistic. In a relationship, you have to put your needs into three parts. Okay, I've got a need. My husband must always tell me where he is. He must call me. He must tell me when he's coming. If it's two in the morning, I don't know where he is. I don't like that. He must be honest. Honesty is a non-negotiable need for me. So that's a need that has to be met. Need for tidiness, is that really important? I can do it myself. You know, by the time I have an argument with him about the tea bag, I've already put it in the bin and put a bit of bleach on the kitchen counter and it's all done. So the second lot of needs, you might have to meet those needs the need to have a tidy kitchen, the need to have, I don't know, organic groceries delivered. Maybe you can do it. It's sometimes you've got to pick your battles. And the third set of needs, you just got to give those up. Some needs are just not important enough to fight about. You know, my daughter is an artist. And artists are very messy. And if you go look at the mess, you go, what mess? I can't even see it. So with my daughter, the need to ha her to have a tidy bedroom, I learned to shut the door. Don't even go in there. If I go in there, go, well, she's happy. Do I need to have a happy daughter or a tidy daughter's bedroom? A happy daughter was actually more important. 
So some needs you must have your partner meet, some you've got to meet, and some just give them away. It's really not not worth arguing about. You reminded me when you talked there about thinking about meeting Prince Charming in perfection. Yeah. I went into a bookshop the other day, um, as I sometimes do, just for inspiration, mm-hmm. you know, and I bumped into a lady who recognised me. Um, I actually took a photo of her because the conversation really stayed with me. It's not its not often that I take a photo of, mm. with someone else. I say, please, can I have a photo with you just so I remember this conversation? And what she said to me in that conversation was reminiscent of many other conversations I've had. She was a, a woman, she's just over the age of 30. I think she was 32, 31. And she was actually in that bookshop looking for a book that would help her solve her romantic and relationship issues. She, she said to me, which is a message I've heard before from close friends of mine, I'm over 30 now. I'm looking for a guy. I've never been in a relationship. I've been working very, very, very hard. Mm-hmm. She says she's excelling in her career. People have told me to, that I just need to go to the gym and work out. And I've tried mm-hmm. that. Um, and I still can't find this person. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and the other sentence I remember, she said, I don't want to settle. And mm-hmm. I've got people close to me in my life, many people that have are in almost an identical mm-hmm. situation, so much so that I sent that photo with her to those people and said, I've just met you in a bookshop. And, wow. it, and it helped me to actually understand them better because mm. to know that there's many, many people that are in that situation, then they've got this kind of societal clock ticking yeah. that's saying you better do it quickly. Yeah. What would you have said to her to help her? So I'd have said, first of all, what are you doing? People say to me, I'm looking for love. Really? Okay, that's great. Where are you looking? Where, where are you going? They go, well, I go to yoga. Any men there? Not really. Oh, you reminded me of something she said. She said, I've tried dating apps. Those don't work. Mm-hmm. People tell me to meet people mm-hmm. in public. But how do you do that? Yeah. So people tell me they're looking for love all the time. I'm looking for love. Where are you looking? Describe your weekend. I went to yoga. Any men in the yoga class? Not really. And then I went to my friend's house. And then I went to a book reading. Any men there? Not really. And then I went out with all my girlfriends. We all looked the same. We all went to the same bar. A lot of competition. So actually, you're not looking for love at all because you're going to places where men aren't. And then men say, I'm looking for love. Where are you going? I'm in the weight room. Any women there? They're all in the yoga class. So if you really want to find love, you've got to be proactive. First of all, sit down and think, what kind of person do you want? I mean, what qualities do they have? What are you looking for? You know, normally I'm, I'm, I'm looking to buy a house, but I've never, I never go to an estate agent and look at the brochures. I just think the house will turn up. I'm looking for a job, but I'm actually going to yoga I'm going to. I'm not going for any interviews. We'd say, well, you're not really looking for a job, are you? When I look for a house, I've got brochures coming in. I'm going to look. At, I'm going to look at houses till I find the right one. So, if you want love, sit down and think about what you want. Make a list. Don't be turned to six pack and gorgeous or a ten. Think of the qualities. What is this person like? And then decide what is that person looking for. You might have to up your game a bit. And then think about where is this person. They're not in yoga, but they're somewhere. And once you've decided that you're worth love, that's the the most important bit. And you can put yourself around people. You'll find love easily, but we're so busy trying to change ourselves. So you have to take some time because the only thing you need to do to find love is, first of all, every day say, I'm worthy of love. I am worthy of being loved. I deserve to be deeply loved and I am worth it. And if you think, oh, when I say that, I feel really stupid, then say it more until you don't feel stupid, until you think, no, actually, it's sinking in now. It's like putting lotion on my skin. It is going in. It is having an impact. So say it, state it, affirm it a lot. I deserve love. I'm worthy of love. Who couldn't love me? I'm deserving of love. And then when you've got that part right and you know that you don't think... 
hope when I go on a date, I'm good enough for them. Well, what about thinking, are they good enough for you? So you've got to reframe that. Don't keep saying, I, I've got to make myself, I've got to chase love, pursue love, get in shape to find love, be perfect to find love. You've got to find love just by being you. So work on knowing you're worth it. That's 80% of your success will come down to having an I'm worth it mindset. Think of the person, think of where they are. And then get out of the yoga and go to the weights room. If you're a girl, if you're a guy, get out of the weights room, go to the yoga. Put yourself around the people you want to be with and you'll end up with them. She did say a line to me, which I just remembered, which is, I've started to think that there's something wrong with me. Yeah. And it's there is a clear pattern in the people who are in that situation that I know mm. that have started to engage in vocal negative self-talk yeah. and self-disparagement. And apps, of course, there's so much. It's like going to a Chinese restaurant with a menu that's 20, but you think, oh, I don't even know what to have now. There's so much variety. I've, I've Now I've got to page 20. I've forgotten what was on page one. If you go to a restaurant with a little menu, you think, okay, I'm going to have that. So apps with masses of variety, lots of people. I mean, they show you a good thing. How many people are looking for love just like you so you're not weird or a freak? Apps are good to show you, wow, all these people, good-looking people are looking for love. But maybe come away from the apps and, and start to talk to people, you know, talk to people. I was just thinking as you're talking about dating apps, I've never been a prolific dating app person because I've, I've been busy, but also I'd never had success on them until people knew who I was sort of in a public capacity mm. and then you can't, I can't use them anyway. No. So, but going back 10 years, I do remember using dating apps, swiping through mm -hmm. and you'd see like really beautiful people and be like, oh, I want that one. You'd swipe right on them. And then the ones that would swipe left on you were just, you know, they were just not the ones you were looking for. Sure. And because you understand the value of anything by the context in which you see it, by seeing 50 beautiful people, yeah. but then getting the ones that are less than, even mm -hmm. if those less than people, it's not, 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 always, not a nice way to describe them, the ones you didn't desire yeah. um, are perfectly okay. Because you've seen them in a context of where course. you've seen supermodels, less than, yeah. you're never going to value them. Yeah, of course. And also, you know, I was thinking about the people that are going on those dates that are searching for, for Mr. Right or Mrs. Mm. Right, are we less valuable when, when we're in search of something? Yeah, definitely. You, That's the you, problem, right? Well, it's it's one thing is to say, hey, you know, I'm, I've got a great life and I've decided, you know, I'm ready to be with someone amazing. I want to share my life with someone who wants to share that. But I'm quite, I'm okay if I don't find them. I've got a great life, but I'm I'm kind of open to finding the right person now. It's rather different to needy. I need someone to complete me. I don't want to be on my own. I hate being alone. I, I need to find my mate, my partner. So you almost need to be at a level where you, you're happy and you've got a great life, but you want to share it rather than I'm incomplete without that person. There's something wrong with me. People used to say to me, why are you not married? I said, I don't know, just lucky, I guess. Because I hated the option of what's wrong with this. I always had that pattern. I don't know. I guess I'm just very lucky. From the age of 20 to 25, yes. everyone I pursued romantically, once I'd even got past the commitment issues, didn't want me. And I, and I always reflect on it and go, when I really wanted someone, there must have been something I was doing. Yeah, they but knew that you were dumped them. They, they knew that you had a commitment fear. That sort of probably came out of your pores. So, of course, really? they jumped you before you dumped them because your behaviour and some of the things you did or said or even didn't would have let them know that... You had a commitment fear. And so really? they just got out before you did. Even they weren't they weren't even I got rejected a lot in that mm -hmm. phase from like twenty to twenty five and I reflect on it and go, how come those five 
girls that I pursued that I really wanted that like, you know, I'd start listening to Adele and think of them like, mm. you know, went into the frenzy. All of them rejected me. But it, if they like, all indirectly. did it, if it wasn't, if it was all of them, they all picked up something from you. Because if yes. it was one, you go, oh, well, it was them. Yeah. It's like people say, I've had five wives, what a disappointment. Have they had five husbands? No. Well, then it was you. I was talking to a client. They said, I've had five wives. They all disappointed me. I said, well, you were the disappointment because they couldn't all disappoint you. You must have wanted perfection, which you did. And you can only ask for perfection if you're offering perfection, which none of us can offer. My, my conclusion from that chapter in my life was there must be like a thousand micro expressions that sure. these people are picking up on that Absolutely. are communicating that I'm low value. Yeah. And I, do you know what? I couldn't fake it. I read all mm. the books mm. about, you know, I read this book and this matchmaking book and this book called The Game, The Mystery Method. I watched all the documentaries. And the, the only reason it changed in my life was when my actual opinion of myself changed. In yeah, my life. of course, because you <laughs> didn't value yourself. And, that, you know, if you have this belief, <clears throat> I'm not good enough and you fake it, people pick it up. They know instinctively. They can't help it because it's at a level beyond communication where you have a low sense of worth. People pick it up. And when you have a high sense, they pick it up too. But when you fake it, it, you're still faking it. So that's why you've got to get to that level of, hey, I'm so great. When I was in, I was in Zimbabwe just before I met John and I was, they put me in a honeymoon suite. And um, it was an amazing place. They kept saying, oh, this is so sad you haven't got a husband. They don't understand that. Why haven't you got a husband? This is not normal. And I thought, you know, I'm so happy. And I thought, I'm re as a second time in a month, I was also teaching in Coventry, but me in a honeymoon suite again. That really was the best room in the house. And it was a big honeymoon suite. I thought, well, you know what? I love being in here. I didn't think, oh, this is so sad. And so the second time I was in a honeymoon suite, I was thinking, you know what? If this is as good as it ever gets, I'm on my own in this amazing place in Zimbabwe, in this amazing, with two baths outside and two showers and two of everything. I'm okay. I'm really happy. And I was married 10 months later. I didn't even know John. Well, I knew him, but we weren't dating. Because you have to get to that level of thinking. And 10 months later, Actually, you were I'm, married? Yeah. I came home. I, bumped, I knew John. Our kids went to the same school. I came home from Africa in September, met him in October. We were married the following August. But I got to that level where I was so happy being just being by myself that I didn't chase him or think, oh, my God, I need this. It was just like, oh, here you are. And I do know you and you're a great guy and it all worked out perfectly but you have to get away from the neediness or I'm running away from it avoiding it or desperately looking for it. in your case looking for it thinking it's a prison you have to be at the level of I'm ready but I'm happy anyway and then from 25 to 30 the next five years the thing that changed in my life was I became um what other people would call successful. Sure. So I had business success. Now, it's funny because someone will look at that and go, okay, well, for the next five years from 25 to 30, you had money, so it attracted people, whatever, right? Yeah. But I know that that's not the full story. I know that I think the success changed my beliefs about myself. Of course it did. And I just think I stood differently and I... Of course you did. And You had a sense of self. It's not that I'm rich, but it's like I've created this. I'm worth something. Your sense of self elevated because of what you've done and achieved and you grew up a bit too. And so your sense of self went up and people like people with a strong sense of themselves. It's very attractive. It's actually very sexy. Confidence is really sexy. A sense of who you are is very sexy for men and women. So without knowing it, that's what you got. And from 25 to 30 in that period, 
I no longer had that issue. Of I course felt, not. I felt that I could attract the, someone that I wanted. If I pursued someone, I thought I went into it thinking, you know, the choice is going to be mine. Yeah. To say that in a, in a the least humble way I possibly can. And I fell in love with someone and I've been with them ever since. I was actually working with someone who won the lottery. <clears throat> and he was. He said, you know what happens when I won the lottery... Women became more orgasmic. I said, you know, that happens all over the world. When men win the lottery, their girlfriends become more orgasmic. He went, yeah, I don't understand it. And it was he couldn't understand it. it was a bit of a joke that, of course, they became more orgasmic because he became so attractive to them because he'd won the lottery. So that was very funny. It makes so much sense. So people are going to hear that and go, so you can't fake. That's what I, I came to learn from that 10 years of my life. You can't fake it. I say it to all my friends now. I, I give them, I give them, I give them this... Uh, Oh, everything I know about some of the books I read about how to be high value. Hmm. And then I tell them the story that between 20 and 25, yeah. I read all these books and I still couldn't do anything about mm. it. So reading the books is not enough because you can't fake it. And I say to some of my best friends and I, one of my close girlfriends, I said, um, it's almost like there's a thousand little micro expressions of mm. low value that we, we give off. And language mm. is just, it's a new form of communication versus sure. the like thousand tiny things we, we don't know we do, which, which mm. tell the person that we don't value ourselves. We have yeah. no self-esteem and we're not confident. If you're looking for self-esteem anywhere outside of yourself, you're not going to find it. If you're looking for self-esteem out there with the Jasmines of the world or someone, unless you're looking for it in here, you're never going to find it. So stop looking out there. Self-esteem is not out there. It's in here. And just spend some time saying, hey, uh, um, I can elevate my sense of self-worth, self-value, self-image. You see, self-esteem means, if I say, Stephen, I hold you in the highest of esteem, so I think of you, but self-esteem is what I think of me. And what happens is we start to poke holes in our self-esteem by saying, oh, I'm not good enough, I'm not rich enough, smart enough, attractive enough, qualified enough. And you've got to go back and go, no, I, I can raise my self-esteem. I matter just the way I am. I matter, I'm enough, I'm lovable. And, you know, my dad always said the job of any school is to raise the kids' self-esteem. That's more important than learning Latin or sport. And all schools, their job is to raise kids' self And parenting, too. Your job as a parent is to raise your kids' self-esteem. But nobody teaches us that. We think, oh, no, it's organic broccoli and making you safe and making you learn Mandarin to send you to a good school. No, your job is to raise kids with good self-esteem. And then they'll have relations with who've got good self-esteem. If it only will work on self-esteem, the world would be so much better. How would you have, what would you have done with 20-year-old Steve if he'd come to you and said, listen, Marissa, I've pursued all these women. They all seem mm -hmm. to not value me. Yeah, well, I would have gone right back to look at what was happening when you were growing up. What was going on with your mom and dad? Where did you get these beliefs from? What happened to you? You know, it's not what's wrong with you. It's what, what happened to you. You should never say what's wrong with you. What happened to you in your formative years? What did you see growing up with your mum and dad? What did you see? So if we look at, you know, Paul McCartney, who loved Linda, and all his children have got very secure relationships. Stella's got four children, amazing parent Mary. She's got three children, but they're very happy. They've stayed with us because they, they learned what they live. You learn what you live. What did you learn? What did you live that you learned, which was that marriage is a horrible place you can't escape from. It's punishing. It's not a place of sanctuary or love or support. Something completely different. I also think I just learned that I was, at a very young age, that 
I think maybe that I learned that I was unlovable at some some level yeah. because I think think about being a black kid in an all-white area mm. where your house is like dilapidated I think that's yeah. the right word where you can't I never sure. brought anyone home never brought a girl mm-hmm. home in the 16 odd years that I lived in Plymouth never brought anyone home no one knew where I lived I had this like constant shame yeah shame and I own. showed up as if I was a confident kid like yeah. you know it was an act team. it was an act yeah and I you think. went home feeling a sense you see one of the I taught 16,000 therapists all over the world and I teach them there's only three things wrong with every person that turns up at your door only three things and one of them is I'm different so I can't connect the next one is I want something it's not available to me and the third one is I'm not enough there's a lot of versions. I'm not smart enough, good enough. But when you told me that little boy who was a black kid in a white world, living in a shambolic house, never bringing people home, straight away you're saying, I was different. And if I'm different, I can't connect because we connect by being the same. Because I like Postman Pat, so do I. I like Pasta, so do I. I like Barbie, so do I. Oh, you're my friend. But when you're different, you can't connect. So you, you first had that first thing, I'm different, so I can't connect. What I want being the same as all the other kids is not available to me. And if you think you're unlovable, then you have to think you're not enough. But of course, that's what you felt. The truth is you're deeply lovable just the way you are. But it's very hard when you don't feel it. So when you, you know, your feelings are the most real thing you have. And we're always trying to use logic. But logic doesn't work because in a battle between emotion and logic, emotion wins every single time. So the emotion of being this kid who felt different, not enough, not the same. You can't logic that better. Yes, you can achieve a lot and work hard and be a millionaire. You remember John Lennon said, the thing you can't hide is when you're crippled inside. And so you're trying to fake it till you make it, but then you just end up feeling like a big fake. You have to go back and look at, okay, I felt different, but here's an interesting thing. If our greatest fear is to feel different, it must be none the same as everyone, because that's our greatest fear to be different. We used to be cast out for being different, banished for being different. But actually, if you fear being different, I really, that means you're the same as everyone because you've got the same fears. And what wasn't available now, it, you've made it available many years ago, and you're deeply lovable and more than enough. So you have to kind of go back and look at that old scene and say, but that's not me anymore. Of course it's not me. So just stating why it isn't you is actually one of the most transformational things you can ever do. As we're so busy looking for how it is us, you know, here's a rule of the mind. Whatever you look for, you will find whatever you focus on, you get more. So when you look at how it's still you or still there or still bothering you, then you'll find it. And interesting, I think when you look at the mess in your room, you remember the shambolic house and that's why it bothers you. Not because it's messy, because you were brought up in a shambolic house. Now you come back and think, oh, look at this room. I've recreated the same. Instead of saying, actually, I'm in a five-star hotel. There's a maid next door. It's a little bit messy. It's not shambolic. But you see what your brain is looking for is what's the same. And it will always find it. But if you look for what's different, you'll find that too. So when you have a brilliant brain, which we all have, and you definitely have, instead of, you've got to talk yourself out of it, not into it. You're talking yourself into how the messy room is the same as a messy home, and it bothers you greatly because it feels out of your control, which it was when you were a kid living in that house. Don't talk yourself in. Talk yourself out of it. Oh, yeah, I have created a mess, but hey, I'm a super successful guy. I'm busy. Someone's going to come in and clean all of this up, and it's not the same. It's vastly different. 
But our mind is always looking for what's the same because it loves what is familiar. After all, you know, if you were a two-year-old kid living in the prairie and you wandered out on the prairie, you'd only eat the berries you already knew. You wouldn't eat anything unfamiliar because it would have killed you. So our primitive brain wants to go back to what is familiar, back to what is known, back to what is comfortable. Well, let's talk about the sugar, because I've yeah. heard you say a yeah. lot. Let's well, I, talk I, I about saw that. This. I saw this. I saw on your, your web, one of the things I saw was the Dietless... Dietless Life. Life, life Coaching and um, the Dietless Life website. Mm. I was on there just before I actually came in the door earlier. Um, and it said that the Dietless Life resolves the underlying cause of overeating. I, let me confess, I am someone that works out pretty much every day. Mm-hmm. I'll work out today... Although I'm going to that Fred again concert, so that might be difficult. That's a workout. I work out pretty much every day of the week. Um, the thing that's holding me back is once in a while, I'll get into a little bit of like a sugar spiral. What I mean mm-hmm. by that is I'll eat some sugar and then the next day I'll eat some more sugar and then the next day I might have some more sugar. It's very addictive. Yeah. I've actually given up alcohol. I've not told anybody that, mm-hmm. but I've given up alcohol completely. But this sugar thing seems to be something that I'm like, I'm like battling with. Mm-hmm. It will happen, you know, once a month and then it could last for like a couple of weeks where I just start eating things that I'm like, why am I eating that? And then I'll get control again of the, mm-hmm. of the ship. How do I avoid sugar? I don't like it. I don't want it. I actually, when someone hands me something, like the first thing I check is the sugar contents. Don't want it in my mm-hmm. life anymore. I've made that decision. Like okay. alcohol, goodbye. Mm-hmm. But it seems to grab me. So your mind always goes back to what something means. So Let's talk about little Steve and what did sugar and all the sugar retreats mean to you when you were a kid? Well, what did they mean? Well, in our house, we weren't allowed them and we mm-hmm. didn't have them. Yeah. We were probably the only family, again, because of money issues that mm-hmm. we didn't have any nice things in the fridge. Yeah. So I would go to the corner shop after school and I would steal as much of the sure. sweets as I possibly could. And then how did you feel? So let's close your eyes a minute. Okay. Just remember, be that little boy. You've just stolen them. You've just got them. It's okay that you took them. Most kids do that. What do you feel like when you've suddenly got them in your pockets or you're eating them? What's the feeling? I feel in control. Mm-hmm. I feel like my friends, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. So you keep your eyes closed and imagine you're now you're grown up, Stephen, and suddenly it's one evening and you want this sugary stuff and you want it the next day and the next day. I want you to say this. I want you to say, when I can't have sugar, when I don't have sugar, say it, repeat it, when I don't have sugar. When I don't have sugar. I feel like that little kid who was deprived of sugar. I feel like that little kid that was deprived of sugar. And that makes me feel... Out of control. Because... Just add the word because. It makes me feel out of control because... Because I lived in a house where I didn't have the ability to get the things I wanted. Sure. So you can open your eyes now. So the adult you, you see, it's not the chocolate, it's the feeling you felt when you couldn't have it. So when people go on a diet, this is what happens. I can't have any of that stuff. I can only have lettuce and they have this traffic like red, everything's banned. Amber okay and green is like lettuce, salad, carrots, grilled fish. And you think, yeah, but I, I want all the red stuff. It's the mind says, if I can't have it, I want it. I want it so much. So again, you've got to talk yourself and saying, hey, you know, I'm a, I can have chocolate every day for the rest of my life. It's always, I can have it and I can have it in abundance. I can have a breakfast, lunch and dinner. And here's the magic sentence that changes your life. I'm choosing to say no and I'm choosing to love it. I mean, my parents are a bit like that. No sugar. That Sorry? Say that sentence again. I'm choosing to say no to chocolate and I'm choosing to love it. I'm choosing to say no to kids treats and I'm choosing to love it. I was working with one of my clients who's a billionaire who goes on his boat, on his yacht and takes 
all these things like refreshers and sherbet stuff because he wasn't allowed them as a child. And even though he's got his own chef, that makes him happy because it's something that was forbidden. And so when he gets it, he thinks, oh, I feel so thrilled. Because it did that when you look at it, it made you happy. So you're looking for the feeling, not the thing. And you can give yourself the feeling without the thing anyway. So as you can remember, I feel the same when I want it and I feel the same when I get it. But could I get the feeling without having it? Of course you could. It's really easy too. Shall I, shall I hypnotize you back to that little boy that wanted the sugar so badly so we can change it? Yes. Would you like that? Yes. Should we do it now? Let's do it now. Okay. Being hypnotized is really easy. I'll show you what you do. Okay. It's about the eyes. So if you look at me, you're going to look up like that. Breathe in, breathe out. Take another deep breath, keeping your eyeballs up. Every time you blink, deep, powerful hypnosis is coming upon you. Breathe out. And just one more time, keep your eyeballs up. And this time, the more you blink, the deeper you're going to hypnosis. As you exhale, keep your eyeballs up, close your eyelids down. And I'm going to tell you, Stephen, that your eyelids are locked shut, glued shut, sealed together. Your eyelids are glued tight. Try to open your eyes, find they're locked shut. Go deeper. Try to open your eyes, find they are glued tight. Go deeper. And one more time, try to open your eyes, find they are fused together. Go deeper, deeper, deeper. Your mind, Stephen, is exactly what chocolate and children's sweets represent to you. I'm going to count back because from five to one, your brilliant mind is going to take you right back easily, powerfully to a scene that is all to do with why as an adult you keep going back to sugar. The minute you get that information, it's going to be such a game changer. And of course, you can't relive anything. It's not possible. You can only review. You can't relive being that little boy, but you can review it. And any scene you go back to, even if it's sad, you're going to look at it with fascination, with insight, with innate understanding of how those scenes then shaped you today. So let's go. So you're about seven. Describe what's happening in this scene. I'm sat on a grass hill. Mm-hmm. I have these boring sandwiches mm-hmm. in my lunchbox. I want you to... It's very important to feel the feeling. You're doing fantastic. I'm just, I'm looking at my lunchbox. I'm seven years old and I feel so disappointed. I'm looking at my lunchbox. I'm seven years old and I feel so disappointed. Is there anything you can do to change the lunchbox? No. I, I, could, I could steal some money from somewhere to buy the things I yeah. want or I could swap or steal mm -hmm. some other food or something. How else is that little kid feeling? Buying sugar or getting it mm -hmm. makes me feel makes me feel powerful. Sure, you know, there's always been that kind of underlying thing because I could never have it. Yeah, as an adult, it's kind of like an expression of like my my new autonomy. Yeah, I'm like you know, of course. I can have whatever I want. Yeah. So now I want you to go back to the little kid sitting on the grassy bank with a disappointing lunchbox. I want you to say to me, that's not me anymore because you need to tell me exactly why, justify and tell me why that's not you. 
So repeat after me, that little kid on that little kid on the grassy bank with a disappointing lunchbox. That little kid on the grassy bank with a disappointing lunchbox. Is not me. Is not me. And will never be me ever again. And will never be me ever again. Because. Because I can have whatever I want now. Yeah. You're not seven. Your mother doesn't provide your lunch every day, does she? No. And if she did and you hated it, couldn't you go out and get whatever you want? Yeah. I would say, that's not me. That's not me. I'll never be seven. I'll never be seven. With a disappointing lunch ever again. With a disappointing lunch ever again. I'll never be seven having less than other people ever again. I'll never be seven having less than other people ever again. That can't be me. That can't be me. I can have whatever I want now. I can have whatever I want now. And what I really want. And what I really want. Is to be indifferent to sugar. Is to be indifferent to sugar. And I want you to think of the words that little kid needed to hear. You know better than me that when you were seven, eight, nine, ten, what you most needed to hear, what you most needed to feel, that you were the same, that you were equal, that you had everything others had. And I want you to repeat some of those words. You can do it in your head or out loud. What are the missing words you've never heard and always wanted to hear? Hmm. One of them was... uh, You have the same resources and money and value as all of your friends. So say that little kid, you have the same money. You have the same amount of money. The same resources. The same resources. Same stuff everyone else has. The same stuff that everyone else has. You're smart. You're smart. And as you grow up. And as you grow up. You create everything for yourself. You create everything for yourself. You see, chocolate doesn't free you from feeling that you can't have it. It actually reminds you, far from solving your issues, it reminds you of that kid. It pulls you right back. It doesn't set you free. It pulls you back to that memory of that kid who could never have it. I don't need to remember that anymore. I don't need to remember that anymore. Because that isn't me. Because that isn't me. And that will never be me. And that will never be me. I can eat sugar every day for the rest of my long, gorgeous life. I can eat sugar every day for the rest of my long, gorgeous life. What I really require... What I really require is complete and utter indifference. Is complete and utter indifference. Playing this recording so my voice goes with you, stays with you until soon. Don't even need this recording. It's wired in, fired in, coded into you. It's who you are, not what you do. And it makes you feel amazing. So knowing it, feeling it, believing it, being it, becoming it, just slowly, calmly, easily just open your eyes. Come back into the room. How do you feel? Wow, I forgot where I was. At least I thought I was somewhere else. That's a great thing about hypnosis. You know, you forget where you are. The critical factor shuts down. Some things only happen in hypnosis. The critical factor shuts down. It accepts things it can't accept consciously. What is going on there? What is going on? Well, your conscious mind is completely shut down. The subconscious that knows it, the subconscious is always switched on, is always on record and it remembers everything and your subconscious is accessing memories. But you're really getting the feeling because the thing is, talk therapy doesn't get the feeling. It says we did this. You want to feel the feeling to say, oh, I see. I'm trying to get the feeling, but I don't even need that feeling. I can be free now. Also time. I looked at the time and... So much time has passed. But it it seems like like five minutes. Yeah, it feels like it was just a few minutes. That's how you know hypnosis is so powerful because you lose all track of time. Time stops, but the subconscious mind, which is running the show, really takes over. Do you know what we'll do in this episode? 
Um, this episode will take a couple of weeks to come out, so mm-hmm. I'll do an insert about sure. how I got on with. Yeah, I'd love that. My re- you are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud so you can access it from anywhere and the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks, so head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode. You, you must have so many case studies in your life of how hypnosis is just... So many. So many people who did dietless life have said, you know, I don't eat sugar. I didn't even know it could be... Someone said, you know, I can't even have a cappuccino with a chocolate. And I said, oh, no, sorry. You got to take that off because I'm simply so indifferent to sugar. And then you start to taste how fake it is, how horrible it is, because your body actually... You know, your body never says, hey, knock me out with sugar. The body hates it. It's the mind. Just like the mind might go for alcohol or drugs until you can get into the mind and say, you know, it's easy to make a better choice because you've chosen it. One of my, maybe my, one of my, my, my best friends in the world, I have mm-hmm. like six best friends, one of my best friends in the world can't, can't eat basically anything. He's, mm-hmm. he's in his mid thirties now. And for whatever reason, some psychological reason, he just can't, when we get to restaurants, he can't order anything. He never has Yeah, known him for 10, 10 years. He basically only eats like a couple of things and mm-hmm. there's something going on where he thinks like, I don't know, the texture of other things. Yeah. So he basically eats like crackers, crisps, biscuits. I was in Dubai in February with a girl called Sarah who don't, you could only eat meat, couldn't eat anything else but meat. And I said, I can fix that in an hour. And I did. We went back to why. And now she eats everything, cake, pasta, because before she was in so much pain. And she did it. She straight away in one session, it was a game changer. I had many kids who say I can only eat cheese and white bread but give him my number i can change that in an oh, I'd hour love to. We, we, we've tried so many things over the years you need to try the thing that works yeah proper hypnosis it works all the time because that magic only happens when you get into that network of intelligence can understand what's going on when you can send different messages to the feeling mind because you it's no good doing it logically it's like saying to an alcoholic now come on have a lovely cup of tea. You don't need that alcohol. They look at you like you're mad because logic can't defeat emotion because his emotion about I can only eat crackers is so powerful. But you can find a better emotion. Where does that come from? What was going on? Like the emotion of that little Stephen saying, when I have the chocolate, I feel better. I feel more powerful. I feel the same as other people. And that was the driver. Now you can say, well, I don't need to do that. I'm already powerful and amazing and equal to all my friends. It took me to a place that I've not been before. I, I actually remembered things that I hadn't ever remembered. What kind of thing? The lunchbox thing. I never yeah. really re- remembered my lunchbox shame. Mm-hmm. That's a new thing, which I uncovered yeah. from being sat on that hill during summer and just opening the lunchbox. Mm. It's just a, this and horrible the powerlessness. Sandwich. It's called learned helplessness and learned hopelessness. I can't accept this, but I can't change it. I don't know. There's nothing I can do about it. Because, you know, you don't want, it's not the scene, it's the feeling within the scene. That's what you got, did so beautifully. That kid who felt powerless, frustrated, disappointed, but could do nothing. I could steal. 
and the sh- yeah, of course, but that's I mean, and that's okay. All kids do that, but that wasn't really the thing that gave you. You could do it, but that wasn't really your choice. You wanted to have the money that Ashley had to go into the shop. You wanted mm. to have the parents to say, "Here's some money, go and buy yourself something lovely," but you didn't have that. But when you stole the stuff, you got the same feeling. But it was never really the same because you had the shame and the guilt and the blame attached. But now you can let all of that go. So interesting. I've never actually felt like that before. I've never I remembered so many things and time just seemed to stand still. And um, I realized things about my relationship with food that have been maybe locked up in the back room somewhere that I didn't mm. realize. So thank you for that. Really, really powerful. It's my first time ever doing anything with hypnosis. But also the shame about the messy room, where that comes from too. Yeah, the same feeling uh, that you couldn't fix it when of course you can. You can say, I love putting stuff away. It feels amazing. I wasn't sure whether I'm messy because it reminds me of home. Mm-hmm. So a messy room makes me feel yeah. more comfortable. Or if it's the opposite, like, you know, I've never been sure which one it which one it is. Well, it's just, I think it because you lived in a messy home, it was yeah. familiar, it was easy. No one said tidy up, put yeah. that away. So if you were in the army, for instance, you say, oh no, I, I make my bed. And because you learned a certain way, but you learned the opposite, just everything's in just a mess. Right, yeah. So the two things that you learnt it is familiar, but also it's deeply disappointing because it makes you feel, oh God, there's yeah, a mess exactly again right. and I can't fix it. When the truth is, you can, you, you've always got a choice. The worst thing is I can't change it and I can't accept it. I can't change it, I can't accept it. I can't change the mess, I can't, okay, I can accept this. Go, hey, I'm messy and I love it like an artist, or you can say, I can change it, but it's like, I can't change it and I can't accept it. Accept it. My daughter loves living in a mess because she's an artist. She doesn't even see it. Or you can say, I can change it by changing how I think. Just say, I love putting stuff away. It makes me feel powerful. And if you say it enough, it will become real because your words create your reality. And if you don't like your reality, you don't have to change it. You have to change the way you're speaking which immediately changes your reality, which is completely shaped by your words. Marissa, thank you. You're so welcome. We have a closing tradition where the last guest leaves okay. a question for the next guest. The question left for you is a very good one, in fact. It's very, um, very relevant. If there was one sentence that everyone should believe about themselves that would have the most positive impact on their life, what sentence is that? I'm enough. All my bracelets say it. I live it. I have. I, I created the I'm Enough movement, which I'm so proud of. It would be, I am enough. I have so many schools having kids say this. This has changed bullying in this school. It's changed the way kids perform academically. It's changed the way they be, they behave emotionally. They all have a little placard and they have to say it. State it of everybody. I am enough. That's my favorite statement because it's the truth about everyone, but we just don't know it. We often think, well, I'm not enough. And if I'm not enough, I need more more chocolate, more followers, more drinks, more shopping. I'm enough. It's a statement that can change your whole life if you state it, affirm it, and it will sink in. Marissa, thank you. Everyone that's listening to this now should definitely head over to your website because there's so much there, whether they want to be trained by you or whether they want to come to one of your events. I was in there rummaging around and actually ran out of time because there was so much, so, so much, many resources. So and much. that's how I found the dieting stuff and the coaching stuff and events. That and a lot of free up. stuff too. We so give away so much free stuff. And your YouTube channel is another example of where yeah. you're just giving away, you know, yeah, hundreds of videos of sure. uh, for free. So thank you for the work you do. You're, you're a huge inspiration to me. That's why I wanted to have you back on. Thank but also so it's my girlfriend who's actually upstairs and talks about you all the time. Oh, how lovely. Um, and she's, 
you know, training and, and doing um, several courses. I believe she's done some of yours as well. But you are a force for good in the world. Thank and you so much. It's so wonderful to hear that your work is now moving into schools yeah, and the everywhere. curriculum. And yeah, it's so exciting. Incredible. Just incredible. Thank you for being who you are. I really You're appreciate welcome. it. You are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky, and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks, so head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode.